Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. On this episode, the 7th Annual Martin Luther King Jr. Convocation, a discussion of American voting rights, reflects on Dr. King's quote, voting is the foundation stone for political action and discusses where we are now 56 years after the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This year's guest panelists are Harvard Law Professor Guy Uriel Charles and ACLU of Minnesota Policy Director Julia Decker. Dean Gary Jenkins with opening remarks and an overview of our Martin Luther King Jr. annual series. Justice Shannon, a 2L and president of the Black Law Students Association will moderate the conversation. This lecture was recorded on January 26, 2022. It is also available for viewing on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our seventh annual MLK Convocation. I'm Gary Jenkins, Dean of the University of Minnesota Law School. Here at Minnesota Law, we take this opportunity each year to convene our community, students, faculty, staff, and friends, using a quotation from Dr. King's body of work as a launching point or a touchstone to reflect on Dr. King's legacy and also to reflect on what those words mean for law and society today. Thank you all for joining us uh, and participating in this really important conversation. Before we begin, I wanna say a special thanks to our assistant dean, uh, Aaron Keyes, uh, our diversity, belonging, uh, affinity council, for sponsoring this great and important annual event. And thanks to our events manager, uh, Olivia Kurtz, uh, for making this happen. As current and future members of the legal profession, I think that we're all aware of the central role of our profession and of the rule of law in advancing justice and advocating for change. In this way, we are all uniquely positioned and privileged to impact our world. However, the act of voting invites all people to add their voice, their direct action, to make political and transformational change as individual citizens. In our democracy, the act of voting is truly foundational to enacting the will of the people and governing by the people. Unfortunately, we know that voting rights for many are under threat. But in many ways, they always have been. Gerrymandering, voter ID laws, uh, restrictions on voter registration, felony disenfranchisement, voter purges are just some of the many ways in which Americans, particularly Black Americans, the elderly, uh, students, people with disabilities, a variety of groups 
have been and are kept from exercising their fundamental right to vote. Dr. King's words call on us to think critically and take action on the limits and consequences of a democracy where voting is inhibited. As many of you know, Dr. King's words that we reflect on today, voting is the foundation stone for political action, they came at the very height of the civil rights movement in 1965. With Dr. King's leadership and advocacy for the importance of voting rights and addressing system barriers faced by African-Americans, the civil rights movement was successful in getting lawmakers to pass the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. This legislation was designed to end racial discrimination in our voting system and provide equal access for all Americans in voting. But of course, we know that that work is not done. In fact, some might argue that it's actively being undone. Today at Minnesota Law, we gather to reflect on the aspirations of the Voting Rights Act and to think critically about its legacy today, the rights of others to participate in our democracy and to have equal access to voting is central to our continued pursuit of equal justice for all. We have an obligation to dismantle barriers to justice, to take action, to lead, and to make an impact in our profession and in our communities. And today we're honored to have two expert panelists, two longtime friends of Minnesota law to inspire us and guide us in this conversation. Joining us first is my friend, Professor Guy Uriel Charles. He is the Charles Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. And as many of you know, Guy was a longtime member of the faculty here at the University of Minnesota Law School, even serving a two-year stint as interim co-dean. Professor Charles teaches and writes about election law, and race in the law, constitutional law, civil procedure. He is also the founding director of the Duke Law Center on Law Policy and politics. He's currently working on a book on voting rights and the Voting Rights Act entitled The American Promise, Rethinking Voting Rights Law and Policy for a Divided America. Professor Charles Gee, my friend, we are thrilled to have you back home at Minnesota Law today. Uh, we wish it were uh, in person, but I don't know if you've looked at the weather, maybe you're happy uh, that you're warm, uh, warmer in Boston, but it's great to have you here. Good to be here. Next, I'd also like to welcome Julia Decker, class of 2014. Ms. Decker is the policy director at the ACLU of Minnesota where she works to defend and advance civil liberties through lobbying at the state legislature and local governing bodies. Before joining the ACLU of Minnesota, she worked at the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, and she taught right here at the law school in the Binger Center for New Americans Federal Immigration Litigation Clinic. Julia, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Dean Jenkins. Honored to be here. <laughs> 
And today, our esteemed panelists, as I mentioned, are going to address the topic uh, voting is the foundation stone uh, of political action. Uh, and, uh, and it's going to be moderated by Justice Shannon. Justice is a 2L here. He is currently serving as president of the Black Law Students Association. And I want to thank him for uh, taking the time to moderate and engage in discussion with our guests. Now, before we begin, a few housekeeping notes. Today's webinar is being recorded. The link to the recording will be shared via email to all the registrants following the event. Uh, we have the live auto caption enabled. Uh, please click on the live transcript feature at the bottom of your Zoom screen to either view or hide uh, the captions based on your preference. And uh, we're gonna reserve time at the end of our panel to address questions submitted via the Q&A feature found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. So now, our student moderator, Justice, he's gonna direct the questions um, uh, received to our panelists and moderate the rest. So over to you, Justice. Good afternoon. Um, we'll start with a question for both of you. With the Voting Rights Act in mind, how did you feel celebrating MLK, this year, MLK Day this year? Well, that's a great question, Justice. Let me first, um, express my thanks and gratitude for the opportunity to be here uh, and to be back um, at the place that uh, was my intellectual and academic uh, formation in many ways. Um, I spent almost 10 years at the University of Minnesota Law School and um, did uh, some uh, work on voting rights, academic work there that uh, served as a foundation for the work that I've done later on. So. So grateful um, for this community. Um, you know, I think your question points to the fact that we're at a crossroads in American uh, law and democracy, um, uh, trying to think about where do we go from here? We've had uh, 50 plus years of a civil rights framework um, that uh, in many ways culminated with the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, maybe even the Fair Housing Act of 1968, uh, in which um, issues of voting equality were at the center of that framework. And what we've seen in the past few years, in some respects, starting with the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder in 2014 that struck down a, an important provision of the Voting Rights Act, is that that model, that framework that had been in place since 1965 really has eroded uh, and that we're trying to figure out what's next. And we're in the midst of a series of fights around voting. Uh, and in some respects, the fights are different from what they were in 1965. In 1965, sort of the fundamental question of racial equality was on the table. Um, and 2022, and this year what we're thinking about is really perfecting the union, um, how to make voting universal, how to, how to take away the vestiges of discrimination, how to assure that voting is not part of the partisan football that it has become in which the parties are fighting over the rules because they know the voting rules will determine turnout and turnout then will affect their hold on power. Um, and so when celebrating 
uh, King Day this year, part of what uh, one has to think about is what I thought about is the fact that the work is not yet done. Um, Dr. King often thought about um, the endpoint, the promised land, um, and articulating his sense of where he's going to be. And I think we can do so collectively. We're not there yet. Um, we may be on our way, but we're not there yet. We have a long way to go. And when we see the crossroads that we are today in American democracy with um, states passing laws that undermine the right to vote, with the January 6th insurrection from last year, uh, with worries about voter subver vote subversion. Um, we know that we're, we're, we're not where we were, but we're not where we need to be. And I think that's the central challenge for the 21st century. Thanks, Professor Charles, and I would I would just echo the the thank you. It's really great to be back here at the University of Minnesota Law School. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this really important topic, um, and I would also just echo um, the sentiments that you know the events of certainly the past couple of years, in particular, um, make us feel like we're really sort of at an inflection point, uh, as there have been in the past. You know, many inflection points in our history, um, but it feels very much like we are now at another one. Um, it's a reminder that our democracy, including things like voting rights and civil liberties, are an ongoing work in progress. And we are still in the process of building you know, an ideal system and that there is not um, a quick fix or one easy solution uh, to make all of it work. Thank you both. Um, that's a very very insightful answers and great way to start. Um, recently, I, I think that's a great way to transition to Mitch McConnell's recent comments on uh, concerning the Voting Rights Act and stating that the concern is misplaced uh, with regard to the Voting Rights Act, stating 94% uh, of African-American vote, vote, voters vote, which is just as common as Americans. Uh, what are your opinions on, the, on this comment? And do you think that his statistic, what are your opinions on the statistic and where he's leading with this? What are the implications? Um, I guess we'll point this correction, this question to Guy. Sure. Um, so the a, a couple set of reactions. Um, the there, there are some implications that we see from the comments by uh, Senator McConnell. One of them is that look. Um, the argument that states have passed laws or attempting to pass laws to make voting harder uh, and that it's having an effect on, on marginalized communities, particularly black communities, that argument, is, he says, is, un, is undermined by the statistics that black voters are able to participate at um, significant and, and high rates. Um, of course, what the de this doesn't account for uh, is the uh, mobilization and the vigilance that happens in, in Black communities and communities of color and marginalized communities. Uh, and what you see with lots of organizations on the ground that work really hard to counter disinformation and misinformation, that work really hard to help voters get voter IDs, that work really hard to get voters to the polls, that work really hard to get voters registered. Um, and we're also not looking at 
the voters who um, are not participating in the political process because the burdens are too high. One of the things that we know is we know this from the political science literature that if you make voting easier, then more people participate. Um, that that is that is one hardcore fact that we know from the political science literature. The more burdens that you impose, the harder it is. All right. The second point is um, that a number of people have. Um, uh, uh, reflected on on McConnell's comments is the distinction that he that he makes the implied distinction between Americans and African Americans and and sort of the assumption that um, African Americans are not sort of the real Americans right when now whether that's intentional or that's a subconscious but it's certainly left that um, or whether it, it didn't mean to, to to make that implication but certainly left that implication that hey well there's they're special, like you know, they're Americans, and they're there are these these other people. Um, and I think there's a, a point that that needs to be underscored, which is um, voting rules in American democracy are good for everyone. Making voting accessible is not something that is a special province for a particular group of people, for Black Americans, White Americans, Northerners, Southerners, Southerners people who live in the cities, people who live in the, in the suburbs. Um, the, the promise of self-governance is, is a promise that is given to all. Um, folks of color should not be excluded. Um, and it is also the case that folks of color really are not the special favorites of voting laws, um, right? So when you make it easier for people to register to vote, you're making it easier for everyone to participate, right? It's sort of like this is the place where we come together as equal citizens and that we can engage in at least that act of self-governance. Uh, and so the assumption, you know, again, whether it was meant or not, that you know we have you know there are the real Americans and then the Black Americans um, certainly uh, is uh, inconsistent with our fundamental values, but also the idea that when you pass voting rules and laws and you engage in equality, you're just making it easier for Black people or Brown people or women or you know that's also uh, untrue. Um, voting rules that are discriminatory actually have also, even in the, in the 1950s and 30s and 40s, had, a, this had an impact on white voters as well. Uh, and so when you open up the political process, you open it up for everyone. That's a fantastic answer. Uh, thank you. Julia, could you follow up on that and address the voter the voter fraud laws that are being passed in states like Texas um, that are being passed to protect voters against fraud. Can you address uh, the ideas of allegations of fraud and the statistics possibly? Sure, um, it's a really good question. And obviously it's a, a burgeoning sort of area of state laws and, and you know, rhetoric around this issue. Um, you know, I know there's there's been a number of studies. I think Brendan Center actually compiled a really good list of articles and studies that dug into this issue and, you know, really found pretty negligible rates of cases of voter fraud. Um, I think the broader issue is that there's, you know, there's a decrease in overall trust of organizations like Brennan Center or universities who are doing this research or sort of the big media outlets like Washington Post. And even if there's the evidence out there that's being presented through these, you know, different uh, avenues, loses a lot of its potency when people are simply not believing its sort of authenticity. 
um, the principle of you know critical examination and wariness to take something at face value is you know is not inherently a bad one, especially in this day and age of social media. Um, but it's being taken to extremes, and it produces this sort of I think anti sort of evidentiary situation that we're finding ourselves in today with some of this emerging uh, rhetoric and narrative around voter fraud. Can I ask you to continue to follow up on that? The Lieutenant Governor of Texas are, argued that voter ID laws are necessary because Americans no longer trust the system and voter ID laws will help restore Americans' faith in the system. Does your response from what you just said differ based on that? And how did you, how would you respond? Sure. I think there's a grain of truth in that argument that many Americans don't trust our systems, you know, and we can see that, of course, we're seeing it in the voting or in the discussions around policing and public safety, um, and even, you know, discussions around the criminal legal system, the courts and how they operate and, you know, disparate impacts, disproportionate um, impacts of those systems. And whether, you know, that distrust in any of those particular systems is justified or not is, you know, it's really going to depend on who you ask. But there's certainly a lot of distrust of a lot of these systems across a lot of demographics in the United States. Um, when it comes to voter ID, I think, of course, the idea that you're bringing in, you know, a more heavy handed system to rebuild that trust is probably mistaken. Um, you know, something like voter ID or, you know, if we're even thinking about something like policing, public safety, where you're increasing penalties, you're increasing government reach into people's, you know, lives, into society, um, you know, that may restore trust in a certain segment of the American population, but it ultimately degrades trust overall for the many more people who are harmed by it. Thank you. Um, I think it's very, you mentioned at the end, it degrades trust by the people who are harmed by it. I think it's very important that we keep that in mind. Um, and I think there's another side to this, the voter uh, poll workers who have recently said, that they feel unsafe working. Uh, one in three election officials feel unsafe working, according to a recent Reuters poll. Uh, do, do we bear a responsibility to help protect poll workers? And if so, how do we protect them? And how do we, does this help to re-legitimize the voting system in America to restore some of that faith that Julia was talking about earlier, um, Guy? Sure. So look, you have to think about how we conduct um, the administration of elections and American democracy. Um, so uh, even with respect to federal elections, we don't have um, federal officials conducting federal elections, um, right? We, um, that responsibility falls on the shoulders of state officials. And what we have is a combination of um, volunteers and state officials. All right, so two combinations of of, of people, um, and we you know and we don't think of it as a career path, and in, in, in many ways we don't have um, a framework for um, for addressing uh, deficiencies and, and and problems. So one of the things that we need to do a much better job of, which you know we've we've started paying attention to in the last few years for probably in the last 10 years or so <clears throat> is um, not just the professionalization 
of um, election uh, official of the election official function, um, but also understanding the fundamental roles, its vulnerabilities, trying to think about um, lessons that can be learned across the board, and the recognition that we can't have a voting system that operates to the benefit of voters without making sure that the people who whose responsibility for administering that voting system have the tools, the skills, the protection, the know-how, and everything that they absolutely need to do so. And I think one of the things that we're going to be focusing on uh, over the next few years is how do we assure um, that the people who, who are responsible for administering our process of self-government um, are protected? Uh, do we, how do we assure that they have the skill set that they need? How do we assure that they have the support that they need? Right? So one of the easy things, for example, that, one, that we can do is to provide more federal funds to the state to help them um, protect and support their election workers, to professionalize um, and to have more uh, uh, um, workers in administering elections and to professionalize them and, 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 and to support them. Because we now recognize that it is a vulnerability of our system when we can't protect our election workers, when they don't have the tools that they need, when they're worried that if they do their job, they're going to get a lot of death threats. We've seen recently that the DOJ um, is prosecuting um, some folks who've made death threats against um, election workers. And I think this is something that increasingly we will need to take much more seriously and to develop legislation, to uh, pass legislation to protect and support our elect election administration system overall, notwithstanding how decentralized it, it is and um, the responsibility that we've given to the states to administer um, American elections, including federal elections. Uh, I believe Julia has a follow-up question for your uh, statement just now. Not, not a question, just sort of an add-on. And I think I just want, uh, would echo, of course, from a general public, po public policy perspective, um, there is certainly got to be some sort of responsibility to protect election officials. Um, I will present the sort of thornier side of this from the ACLU's perspective, which is, you know, how do you create policy and legislate in, you know, these protections in a way that doesn't bring in potential civil liberties issues? Um, you know, I think one of the things that I focused in on with this this poll was, you know, the the feeling of fear, which is a, a subjective feeling, and it's difficult to legislate around subjective feelings. And, you know, that is not meant as a dismissal of election officials' concerns or, you know, the concerns for safety of elected officials or anyone else who is participating in the system. Um, but for instance, you know, statutes that are aimed even at criminalizing threats against a person generally focus on um, intent, you know, or the purpose of the threat as opposed to the feelings, subjective feelings of the person being uh, being threatened. And, you know, I'll bring this up and I think this may be a little bit uncomfortable to point out, but, you know, one of the contentious points that we have seen raised in the aftermath of police violence, police shootings is, you know, a, an explanation from a police officer that, you know, I feared for my my life. And, you know, there has then been 
you know, warranted criticism of how subjective that statement is, because how can you test that statement when it is, you know, purely a personal subjective feeling? Um, and so I think that's an area to be cautious about. And, you know, obviously the ACLU watches closely. I think there also needs to be caution when attempting to legislate um, around things that could uh, impact the First Amendment. Anytime you're dealing with something that, you know, you're talking about speech or potentially protest, um, I think it shouldn't be a surprise that the ACLU, you know, even incredibly unpopular speech, um, you know, the ACLU will want to be holding the line on, on First Amendment rights. Can you, uh, can we dive in a little deeper on this and discuss how we can balance these two points against each other, this idea of wanting to protect uh, election workers and also wanting to protect First Amendment rights? Uh, there was a recent article from Vice News where Vice went and called uh, pe people who were leaving harmful threats to poll workers and leading poll workers to quitting their jobs. Do we think there, do we have ideas for how to balance these two issues? Or is this something that we're going to have to continue to monitor for the next few years? And I'll leave this to both of you to address. Well, it's certainly something to continue monitoring. Um, and, you know, we have already seen how the line between, you know, speech and violence is not an easy distinction always to make, or, you know, the, the crossover between those two can be very difficult to, um, to know where it is and also to, of course, predict in the future where, where will, you know, where will the line be crossed? Um, I think the sort of broader principle has to be that, you know, the First Amendment can't be, you know, you can't subject only certain people or only certain content to the First Amendment because if that is the precedent that you create, you are creating the ability for the for that to be turned around on another group at another time. And I think that as uncomfortable as that principle is, I think that we still have to hold to that in order to be true to the idea of, you know, the principle of the First Amendment, the principle of um, civil liberties. And I'm not saying that's an easy question, right? That it, it's never an easy question and it's something that we will continue to have to monitor. But I think we do ourselves a disservice to not engage with the basic principle of, you know, the First Amendment when we are talking about these things. Justice, if you're waiting for me, I guess I just say a couple words. Look, I understand that that the uh, Julie's right that one has to think about um, making sure that we don't go overboard. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, to the extent that um, poll workers are being threatened um, or election of administration officials are, are being threatened, um, they ought to be protected and Congress certainly has the power to do so, especially with respect to federal elections. Um, and, um, and the states have the power to, to protect their election administration officials. Um, and the other thing that we didn't talk about is not just um, threats, but also um, a, certain types of electoral pressure. So, we, for example, we saw in Georgia the, the, how um, Georgia changed its rules um, to centralize the election administration function so that way there could be greater control 
over certain types of officials. Um, and that's also something to, to, to worry about because then when it comes to the vote counting process, we wanna be sure that we have uh, people who are, who are engaged in, that, in, in vote counting who are not going to simply render a um, partisan count who are going to be, and, and uh, you know, so many of our elect, elect, uh, election administration officials are fair-minded. They want to do the right thing. They know they're, what, what, what they're doing, uh, but we see increased political pressure on our uh, election administration officials, and that, that well, has an impact on, um, on, on fair vote counting and, um, and the subversion of, uh, of our democracy. So, so I think these are, you know, these raise difficult and thorny questions, but they're certainly important questions that, that ought to be focused on. Thank you. I, I, think, uh, I thank both of you for addressing this. You're presenting two sides of a very, again, thorny issue. And I wouldn't say that it's even two sides, really. It's uh, the same side of a coin of saying we don't want to go too far. Um, so thank you to both of you for your very candid answers. Um, so on that note, uh, how can uh, Americans, lawyers, and law students uh, get involved in the system? What can we do to protect these issues? Um, if you, we're not employed at the ACLU, we're not law professors at Harvard, what are, what are our steps, our actions to get involved? Um, yes, vote, absolutely. How else can we get involved? Uh, again, we'll leave this open for both of you. Sure, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I would certainly call it continuing to work towards equal access as we've sort of highlighted, I think we're probably not there yet by any means, and we are facing some backsliding in, in that area. Um, I think two key things that just policy pieces that, um, you know, people, even if you're not a lawyer, uh, you know, you're a law student or you're not, you know, in law school, you're, you're um, just resident, um, you know, advocate for expansion of the franchise. So folks who are um, maybe had a criminal conviction in the past and are now um, on probation, but are living in the community, advocate for expansion of the right to vote to those folks. Also, quite frankly, advocate for the right to vote to never be taken away. I mean, I think that's a, that's the step beyond uh, the, you know, um, re-enfranchisement of folks who have a criminal conviction. And that, you know, but that is, a, that is an open question. Like, is the right to vote, is that something that should ever be taken away? Um, I think in a broader sense, pay attention to what's happening at the city and state levels, as well as the federal level. There's certainly an element of this work that can come down from the federal government, sort of the, you know, top down issues. But, you know, things like voter ID, election officials, mail-in voting, you know, drop boxes, all of this sort of nuts and bolts stuff, a lot of that is happening at the state and local levels. And uh, there's still a process, of course, they can still take time, but they sometimes can move more quickly and sometimes more quietly than the federal government. And so really being sort of in tune with what's going on, not just nationally, but um, locally can be really helpful just to understand, you know, what is actually going on on the ground. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, focusing on the state and local, I think really does matter. Volunteering as a poll worker, um, volunteering on campaigns, um, many campaigns, no matter what your political identity is, um, could use law students and lawyers 
um, to do voter protection issues. Uh, so volunteering to, um, to do voter protection issues. There are lots of organizations, a plethora of organizations working on uh, voting and um, democracy uh, issues. Volunteer to support those organizations. Uh, so it, one doesn't have to be an election lawyer as a profession. One does not have to practice at the ACLU or be an academic. There are really lots of roles, especially you know, at the local level uh, with various grassroots organizations that can often use someone with a legal skill set for short periods of time to uh, support their voter protection efforts or their democracy efforts or their grassroots get out the vote efforts, um, right? And being involved in a campaign, again, no matter what your political identity is, everyone can support democracy. Everyone can get involved in a campaign. Everyone can engage in voter protection issues and any and everyone can uh, volunteer to be a poll worker um, and to work in their, in their local uh, community and to support democracy efforts. Thank you. Um, so our last question is a bit of a subject change, um, but I think it's important to get to because one of the outcomes of voting is who is elected and what are their policies. Um, we've seen in states like Virginia and Indiana that one of the pressure points of elections recently have been critical race theory and books by black authors that don't teach critical race theory, they just teach black history. Um, a recent, and what are your initial thoughts on election on elected officials removing books related to critical race theory or black history? And what can we do to prevent these kind of actions in the future? Because uh, this isn't a, again, this isn't a new concept. This is something that's been, that's happened in the past and has been brought up again, right? So I would love to hear both of your thoughts on the concept. You know, this question is actually very much related to the first question that you posed, um, because I think the challenges that we're seeing today are the challenges of what does it mean to be a multiracial, multicultural, uh, multireligious, sort of a, a, a fairly broad democracy. Um, so at the very beginning, at when uh, this republic was established, we the people really meant for the most part a very narrow set of people um, and many colonies uh, and then later states, uh, only certain types of people, white male property owners were um, allowed to vote, were allowed to stand for office. Uh, and increasingly we have seen an expansion, we got rid of the property requirements, we got rid of the literacy requirements, we got rid of some of the blatantly racially discriminatory, we got rid of the gender limitations, right, with the passage of the, of the 19th Amendment, um, right, we, uh, we got rid of, of, of the poll, of poll taxes, uh, and even in the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, many states have, got, have gotten rid of their ex-felon disenfranchisement laws. We have, are, have, are increasingly making democracy much more available and open to a broader group of people. And we're sort of at this point in which we're saying, okay, 
Um, this is going to be a multiracial, multicultural democracy in which everyone gets to participate in that, in which we all come to the table as equals, right? So again, if you think of this as the king version, right? We're not there yet, but that's, that's the mountaintop. That's where we wanted to go. Now, not everyone is going to be on board. Right. Um, what you're what you're seeing are power shifts, uh, in which um, you know the the groups that were thought themselves to be dominant. Um, now we have equality. We have we're we're flattening the hierarchy, uh, right, and making it easier for everyone to come to the table as, as equals. And some people are reacting to that. And I think one of the ways that people are are reacting to it. One of the things that that you're seeing are people saying, "Hey, well, what about me? What about my identity? What about my group?" Where I think your group is getting too much power. And I think we're seeing this manifested in this whole thing around critical race theory. Um, right? I'm teaching a seminar on critical race theory. And one of the questions that we're asking in that seminar is, why are we seeing these these uh, laws um, or bills or ordinances being passed? Why are people getting so anxious at school boards? Now, they may have some legitimate worries about their kids, but they're also the stoking of re racial resentment as uh, more people are coming to the table. So I think we need to, um, this is a, consistent with King's message of um, articulating a message in which we're saying, look, all of us belong. This is not going to be zero sum. Everyone has a place at the table. And just because we're, uh, we're, we're uh, bringing other people to the table also means that we're widening that table, right? We're making more room, we're building a, a bigger table so that way people don't feel that, right? If, if Black or Latino or Asian or urban or suburban people are coming and getting and asking for resources and participating more, well, that means that I'm going to be losing out. So we need to articulate and create public policy in which everyone feels that they are wanted, that they have a place, because you're seeing this racialized backlash. And I think one of the ways that it's manifesting it, it, itself, you know, again, people may have uh, other types of worries, certainly COVID has something to, to, to do with it. But one of the ways that it is manifesting itself is by singling out um, ideas and books, no 1619 books, no critical race theory books, no, no Toni Morrison books, uh, right? Those are, I think, a, an indication of the backlash that we are seeing as a consequence of an attempting to have a, multi, a more multiracial democracy. Yeah, I would add that I think this is um, in some ways sort of, it, it, it sort of backs up the idea that in, in many ways voting is still a radical act. Um, you know, for, for those of us on the panel, there, it was a time, certainly I think in my parents' lifetime, certainly our grandparents' lifetimes in which most, none of us on this panel, I think would have been able to vote. And so that is not a long time in which this has been sort of a, a you know, established, rooted idea. Um, and that the systems that feed into disenfranchisement are really tied up in a lot of things, you know, citizenship, mass incarceration, um, you know, a whole lot of our systems are all tied up in this. And, you know, so voting is, is a foundational piece of political action, um, but it's not the only one. And um, I think that that is, is something to keep in mind when we are looking at how 
sort of vicious a lot of this backlash is getting is that this is we are still in it in a lot of ways and you know even just the act of voting it was not guaranteed for many of us even in the not so distant past thank you both um i think those answers really get to the heart of the question and they really address issues related to education regarding critical race theory in America. Um, we have some Q&A questions from the greater law school. Uh, so I will ask accordingly. Uh, a, I'm not certain if there are one L2, L3, L. Ask, do you consider the expansion of voting rights to documented non-citizens in New York City and elsewhere helpful or counterproductive to enact it to enactment of federal voting rights protections in the United States. And I think, Julia, you've given very uh, thoughtful answers related to um, incarcerated voters in America. And I think this is uh, one step to the right or a step to the left related to that. So I'd love if you could answer this question. Well, I, I saw Professor Charles came off of mute as well. So I'd be happy to hear his thoughts. I would say, um, you know, I'm. This is maybe more of a general public policy, you know, as opposed to a specific ACLU uh, position, but there's probably a really good public policy argument for why people who are permanent residents, even if they are not citizens, who are but are living in the community, are paying taxes, are, um, you know, engaging with um, social and economic and political systems in a lot of ways throughout their lives, should be able to have a say in uh, the government that they are living under. And I think that is also why when we talk about incarcerated folks, in some ways it's almost more important that folks who are incarcerated uh, not have that right taken away because they are under the full control of the state. And their, their say in, in the state that they are under the control of is, is arguably even more important in that context where they're fully vulnerable to the power of the state. Yeah, but I would add, we have, uh, I think this question was posed by my former colleague, uh, Professor Cooper, if, if, if that's correct, but maybe not. Um, but, you know, I think we have a long tradition of voting by non-citizens. Um, and uh, in many respects, we're returning to, to that tradition. Um, and I think it could cut both ways, quite frankly, for the greater goal of passing federal legislation. On the one hand, I think the more that we can say that, hey, voting is a fundamental right. And as Julia said, if you, you have a stake in this community, uh, and because you have a stake, we ought to make it much more widely available to you. And that includes your right to also link this to uh, voting by ex-felons, right? So like, it's not just the, it's not those who own property. It's not those who can read. It's not those who can pay a poll tax. It's not, it's not if you're part of the elite, but is if you are a member of this community and for local elections, we're going to define being a member of the community very broadly to mean not just citizens, but also non-citizens for local and maybe even some state elections. And so I think that advances the goal of, um, of making voting and think about voting really as a fundamental right. 
um, and might make it easier to pass legislation. On the other hand, it might worry some people on the other side because the thinking is, hey, this is where all of this is going to lead and it's going to lead to um, governance by people who are not formal members of the community. And I'm really worried about that. Those people should not be entitled to vote and that might stoke political opposition. So we could, you could see the worries on, on both sides here. Uh, though we do, as I said at the very beginning, one of the way one of the ways in which we've enticed people to move, especially early on to, to the Western states was to give them a stake in governance, even though some of them were non-US citizens. Thank you both. Um, this next question is uh, from 1962 to 1972, there was a massive shift in political power away from the states towards various national bodies. Uh, can you talk about the challenges posed by increasing constitutional, I've lost the rest of the question. Sure, I've, I think I have the rest of the question. The challenge posed um, by uh, moving away from uh, power from the states to um, to essentially the federal government. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the question raises um, what is a, a fundamental divide currently in American politics, um, especially at the, um, at the federal level. We, federalism and, um, and voting is really a feature of how the process operates. So if you look at, for example, the elections clause, um, right, that enables the states to, 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 to um, pass certain laws, but then give Congress the, the right and authority to come and to step in and to say something like, look, for federal elections, um, we want automatic same day, automatic registration or same day registration or no voter ID, right? It's a combination of both state and, and federal. Um, what you've seen with the cases, like the reapportionment cases like Baker versus Carr or like the Voting Rights Act, as an example, or maybe even the Help America Vote Act is more um, constitutionalizing and then to some extent federalizing some rules as well as some practices. So when Congress said in the Voting Rights Act, look, if you're a state that has a history of, of discrimination, you can't use a uh, literacy test. Um, right, so that's federalizing um, uh, um, some state practices or Baker versus Carr, the one person, one vote rule that says, okay, we're going to constitutionalize. Um, but you're, but but there's there's a divide, there's a fight as to how much can be constitutionalized and how much can be federalized. So when you look at the 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 cases on political gerrymandering, with the court saying, look, political gerrymandering may be unconstitutional, but we the court we don't have a we don't have a role to play so which then where the court is then rejecting the uh, impulse to constitutionalize that type of a practice so part of the fight in American democracy that we're seeing today is how much are we going to constitutionalize and make rules um, using the constitution that says look these are what the fundamental rules should be how much are we going to federalize and to say these are the types of things that the federal government so for the people act um, which has been proposed by by the house 
uh, that's one of the you know, Mitch McConnell and others reaction to it was, well, this is going to take state practices and, 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 and give the federal government a broader role. So these are the traditional fights that we've had in American democracy. And increasingly, we've seen more constitutionalization and more federalization around, particularly around federal elections and practices. Uh, and to the extent that we want uniformity, that might be the only direction and place to go. Thank you. Um, bit of a subject change, but I think it's important to ask this before we run out of time. Um, so for both of you, uh, any thoughts on how the retirement of Justice Breyer might impact the Voting Rights Act, uh, the voting rights at the Supreme Court level? Well, it'll have an impact one way or another, but, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, this is I, when I saw the news, I thought, oh, I bet this will come up in the in the panel. So um, can't say I'm surprised by the question, but I think it's pro it's a bit early to to speculate on much. You know, it's it's a uh, you know we're living in interesting times. What can I say? It, and it probably won't change the valence of the court. So you know, you probably have five, maybe six justices uh, who are relatively antagonistic to the Voting Rights Act. Um, and Justice Breyer will likely be replaced, will be replaced by someone who's at least uh, where he is, if not to the left of him. So, you know, so we might, we will still end up with a six three court. So in voting rights issues, maybe might put those issues much more prominently, but not likely to affect the outcome at the slowest level. Thank you. Um, prior to that, we had a question related to uh, your statements on the electoral process. Can you discuss specifically which roles can be professionalized in the electoral process? Uh, this is a question directed towards Key. Sure. So just think about when you go and into the polling place, um, right? Um, most of the folks who are involved in that process in terms of helping you to exercise your right to vote are volunteers. Like imagine like if you went to the hospital and the person who was doing the intake was, you know, grandmama who was volunteering for the day, um, right? I mean, I think what we want to think about are um, an, ele an election administration process in which um, all aspects of it are, um, are professionalized by, by folks who have training, who, um, who are not just volunteering their time, and even the, the ones who are being paid to do so um, are trained, and we think of it as career options for, for people. Um, there are professional organizations, right? So we're doing much more of that. We should, it, it should be less partisan, um, right? So, so it should be much more nonpartisan. That's also part of what I also mean by professionalization. So I think if we can do more along those lines, um, then I think we can have a, a, an election administration process that reflects the type of democracy that we want. Thank you. Um, and the same student asked with regard to the con conversation on critical race theory. Uh, can you define critical race theory? Because there is some confusion on what critical race theory actually is. Sure, critical race theory is basically um, an approach that, uh, that looks at fundamentally American law, right? And says, hey, we still have structural discrimination 
and that structural discrimination is endemic. That is, if you, if you simply try to do colorblindness and say we're all equal, we're going to continue to have discrimination. We're not going to get to equality. And the question is why? It's because it's endemic, it's because it's structural. So there are lots of things that one could say that you know, with 30 seconds, you can't do a lot for, but at its core, that's the, that's the essential claim. But critical race has been politicized to just mean anything having to do with race. Right. So and and a lot of people's imagination, anything having to do with race is critical race theory. And all of that is bad. Um, right. And so few people really understand what CRT is, uh, but it has been politicized and weaponized in order to undermine a whole series of um, public policy that may or may not be consistent with critical race theory, some of which may have absolutely nothing to do with critical race theory. Thank you very much. Uh, I think that difference is very important. Um, the time's now 112. Um, thank you both for coming. I'm, I personally had a great time. I hope all the viewers did as well. Uh, Julia, would you like to start with your closing thoughts? Sure, I mean, I, I think we've had a really great discussion here and so I don't want to, you know, have to repeat a bunch of thoughts back at everybody. Um, just really appreciate the opportunity to have these discussions. And um, I think just, you know, to say that um, we really are still in the mix in all of this, this is an ongoing work in progress. And, um, you know, we just really urge people to continue to pay attention at, you know, really state and local levels, even down to your county and school boards um, as one of the sort of key places to, uh, really try and make an impact. Thank you to the University of Minnesota. Thank you to Justice. Thank you to Julia. Uh, let's take our right to vote seriously and then let's try to protect it and expand it for all. Thank you everyone for coming. Um, was a, uh, Dean Jenkins just turned on, so I'll leave him to close for the day. I just want to say thank you, Justice, uh, for moderating. Uh, thank you to our panelists uh, and, and this really uh, great and important and timely conversation. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Have a great day. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.